This morning's scripture reading is from the book of John, John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, and 24 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, good morning. And we apologize for the synchronization issue that we had. We think we're sorting it out. uh, But I know that our team here is working as hard as they can uh, to make this as an easy-flowing service as possible for you. So please bear with us. Uh, Just a word to our Highlands family. We love you. We've been praying for you, and we miss sharing life with you. Uh, Our hope is to gather again very soon. Uh, Like the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon. And then John, when he wrote uh, in 3 John 14, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Uh, But for now, we wait on the Lord and we learn what he has for us during this season of life. And we know that God is good and God does what is good. How does a believer navigate persistent and sustained doubt while not wandering off into danger? Or how should a non-Christian respond to doubt that persists in their life? And what exactly is doubt and is it synonymous With unbelief, is there any benefit to doubt? And if so, how do we resolve doubt before it becomes corrosive rather than constructive? These are a few of the questions I find more and more that not only young people, but middle-aged and some elderly people are asking. And I believe what we need to do right here at the outset is give permissions, give Christians permission to doubt. Rather than ignore or suppress it, Because there's not only benefit to doubt in your life, in a believer's life, but to everyone who shares life with you, everyone who's in your orbit could benefit from some honest questioning. Charles Spurgeon said, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, Charles Spurgeon said, 
it is quite time for us to doubt Him. Well, what is my biblical warrant for giving Christians permission to doubt? Well, consider Abraham's confusion as he appealed to God several times in light of what seemed like the unjust destruction of two cities. Listen to this. It's a, it's a question, not a statement. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The doubt? God's justice. Have you ever doubted God's justice or His fairness? Or hear the pain in Sarah's voice when she sarcastically asks this, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The doubt? God's ways. Specifically, His timing. Have you ever doubted that about God? Or the prophet Habakkuk's frustration when he argues with God, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save the doubt God's character, specifically his indifference in light of evil. These are just a few examples to help us understand that there is no such thing as a stupid question and that we actually have biblical warrant for for telling Christians they have permission to doubt. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Bill Watterson, creator of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, captured doubt and skepticism in one of his comic strips. I'm not sure what Watterson believes about God, but the Washington Post recorded that although he is known to be notoriously tight-lipped, Watterson said he named Calvin after the Protestant reformer John Calvin. In one of his episodes, Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes asks, This whole Santa Claus thing just doesn't make sense. Why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? And if he doesn't exist, what's the meaning of all this? Hobbes, Calvin's stuffed tiger and best friend, responds, I don't know. Isn't this a religious holiday? Calvin says, yeah, but actually, I've got the same questions about God. There's no such thing as a stupid question. That's what my grade school teachers would use as a prompt to encourage us in our rural eastern Pennsylvania classroom to speak up because we were so quiet. Somehow the assurances that there are, are no such, there are no stupid questions um, had no effect on me, partly because from my, my chair I could see out through the windows the playground and that only increased the sense that I was being held against my will in a classroom. I was curious, uh, very curious about the outdoors. I'd love to hear the tractors. I'd love to see the puffy white clouds. But I still have my report cards from kindergarten through fifth grade that preserve in writing my tendency to daydream. Several teachers wrote that in the notes that Stevie is a good boy, but we always have to pull him back from daydreaming. My world was a simple world. Even in our tiny rural home in Bedminster, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, even though it was less than 50 miles from Philly and less than 80 miles from New York City, my world was small and safe and beautiful. Only in the past year was I reminded or told uh, that a witch would actually walk the borders of her farmland nearly every day, and that border butted right up against our backyard where the cornfield was. But she, the witch, was not a part of my reality at that time. So what questions could I possibly have? Can I go outside and play? 
When will school be over? What's for dinner and when? And I know I asked this question several times. When will church be over? But fast forward from that elementary school, fast forward 40 plus years. I've studied and taught theology for nearly 30 years. I've been in ministry for more than 25 years. I've ministered on the continent of Africa for more than a decade. I have six children and each has been affected by the evil world in which they live to differing degrees. One of my daughters was sexually molested when she was 13 years old by a man who traveled to Zambia on a church's mission team by a professed Jesus follower. And all of a sudden, the little boy from the provincial Bedminster Elementary School who only wanted to go outside and play on the recess now had a lot of questions. Eugene Peterson wrote, quote, Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. So if there truly is no such thing as a stupid question, we would expect to find some of those difficult questions in God's word asked by godly people. Let's revisit our first three examples. Abraham. The first mention of belief in the Bible is found in Genesis 15, verse 6. And not surprisingly, it is connected with Abraham. Scripture records in Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham, and he believed, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But Abraham's belief was not unchallenged by doubt. Abraham asked God in Genesis 18, 25, it's almost as, as if Abraham is counseling God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked... Far be that from you. And here's his question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham asked that question because he needed clarity on what seemed to be a contradiction in God's character. Abraham teaches us there is no such thing as a stupid question. Sarah in Genesis 18. The Lord told Abraham that Sarah would give birth to a son. We pick up our reading in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. You know, if God calls you out for lying, just own it. But Sarah's response indicates this. She doubted God's goodness. Ability, timing, and his promise. She knew that her womb was past the age of being able to give birth. So something miraculous had to happen. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Or go back to Habakkuk. If you are inclined to ever think it is wrong to ask or question God, consider the words of Habakkuk 1 verse 2. How long, O Lord... 
Must I call for help? Listen to what he says. But you will not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry. But you do not come to save. Habakkuk's opening prayer expresses the heart of so many believers who desire justice, but all they can see is perversion and wicked and people prospering who do not follow the Lord. And God, worse, it seems like God doesn't care. Habakkuk says in verse 2, chapter 1, you don't hear, you don't save, you idly look at wrong. These aren't just questions. These are accusations. What Habakkuk is saying is that God not only seems to tolerate sin, but seems powerless to stop it. Matter of fact, in chapter 1, verse 4, Habakkuk asks, the law is paralyzed. Basically, the Mosaic law had very little effect upon the people. We would say this, Scripture seems impotent to bring forth any change. Preaching seems in vain to turn the tide of evil. So Habakkuk cries out, justice never goes forth. And worse, chapter 1, verse 4 Justice goes forth perverted. He lays that down at God's feet. Habakkuk is frustrated because it seems God is letting sin go. He's giving evil a pass. That Habakkuk cares more about justice than God does. Basically, why don't you hear? Why don't you save? Why do you idly look at wrong? Good questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Here's what we learn by all three examples. We learn... From these biblical characters that faith and doubt are not different journeys. They're not separate paths. It's a single entwined journey on a narrow footpath through changing seasons and changing experiences of life. So what is doubt exactly? Doubt is simply a sense of uncertainty or a challenged belief when confronted by an experience that seems to contradict the truth claim that we've embraced. We could say for a believer, it's any question we might have about God's character or ways between faith and the moment that faith becomes sight. And when is that? When we see Jesus face to face and when faith is realized, or we would say there is no longer any need for faith. But if there's benefit to doubt, then we need to dispel three common misconceptions of doubt. The first misconception is that doubt is always wrong or that somehow doubt is always sin or that somehow doubt is always weakness. This view assumes doubt is synonymous with unbelief. And for support, those who contradict the fact that doubt, that doubt is not a sin and that Christians should have permission to doubt, they go to James chapter 1, where James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And from an initial reading, it seems like James is saying that all doubt is weakness, that all doubt is wrong, that all doubt is then sin. But James was not denouncing doubt. What James is pushing against in his letter is a mindset of divided loyalty between God and the world. Because he asks this later in the letter, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what James is confronting and exposing. Don't capitulate between loving the world and loving God. 
The doubt James addresses is divided loyalty, not intellectual honesty about serious considerations. The second misconception is that doubt exists because faith doesn't. Again, this misunderstands the nature of doubt as opposed to the nature of unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are not synonymous. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Oskines wrote, If ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. There is no believing without some doubting, and believing is all the stronger for understanding and resolving doubt. The third misconception is that all doubt can be resolved by either a superior logical argument or with empirical proof. And what this does is it misunderstands the nature of faith. To confuse the nature of doubt with the nature of unbelief is to complicate the struggle to wrongly accuse and wrongly diagnose the problem. Again, Oskines states this, to insist that only doubt-free faith can be counted as genuine faith is to misunderstand what knowledge and faith are. The true relationship of faith and doubt is closer to that of courage and fear. Fear is not the opposite of courage. Cowardice is. So let's develop that thought a little bit. Courage cannot be fully displayed without fear. You don't need any courage in the absence of fear. Fear, if, if you would picture it this way, fear is the arena in which courage is displayed. And in that arena, sort of this opponent of fear steps in. And when he steps in, it exposes either cowardice or courage. In the same way, doubt does that. Doubt is simply this arena. And when doubt steps in, it either exposes unbelief or belief. But doubt is neither unbelief or belief. So there is benefit to doubt. And the benefit depends on your relationship to it, much like our relationship to the sun. The sun provides light and life and warmth and vitamin D. But there's a reason people aren't exploring the planet Mercury for future human colonies, because Mercury is too close to the sun. It's all about relationship. It's all about distance. So something can be good, but also be dangerous. Doubt can be like that. The young man, the legend of Icarus, Always fascinated me. Daedalus and Icarus were put into the labyrinth, which interestingly Daedalus' son Icarus had created. Daedalus found out that the only way that they could escape from the island of Crete was to make wings. It's the first time flight had been sort of explored. And he made wings out of wax and feathers. And he warned his son Icarus not to fly too close to the sun. They escaped out of the labyrinth. They escaped from the danger of the Minotaur. They're flying up high. And Icarus, as a young, more foolish man, was so excited that he started to fly too close to the sun, in which case his wings started to melt and he fell into the sea and drowned. The doubt can either be corrosive or constructive. There can be value and there can be danger. One of the greatest values of doubt is this. It can expose an object of faith that is not trustworthy. And here we're going to let, we're going to let doubt sort of press into unbelief, even though they're different. Let, let, me, let me illustrate this. I, as a young boy, I was led to believe, for fun, uh, in the existence of the tooth fairy and Santa Claus. The benefit of doubting whether fairies would, uh, 
creep into little children's bedrooms at night and steal their teeth, which is really, really creepy if you think about that, and replace it at that time, it was quarters, and we'd find a quarter, and that was sort of that experience, that empirical proof that we needed to believe in the tooth fairy, or whether elves make toys at an undisclosed location in the North Pole, Doubting those claims early on prevents you from being the only 17-year-old in high school defending the truth claim of smallish toy craftsmen or creepy nighttime fairies. See, there's benefit to doubt, especially when it pushes against false claims. But it's not always that simple and it's not always that innocent. Parents assume that their child will outgrow those views. But what if... False views are taught as non-negotiable truth claims. And I think this is where the benefit of doubt is seen most clearly because a polar expedition can travel to the North Pole and disprove a a mysterious toy factory even though Santa's Village is found on Google Maps. It's easy to disprove that. But what about disproving claims that are beyond this world, that are supernatural and invisible? So what doubt can do is it can sift not only fictional narratives from non-fictional ones, but it can also help refine and expose competing truth claims. Consider this. You were born to a caring, loving family in the remote valley of the Himalayas. All you ever knew was the cultural cadences and festivities of Tibetan Buddhism. It was taught to you as truth. matter of fact, you didn't even see a difference between culture and religion because it was a seamless life. To be in that valley is to be Buddhist. For your entire childhood, you were unaware of any difference or any other competing truth claims. To breathe and to live in the valley is to be Buddhist. To wake up and to live is to turn the prayer wheel at the temple with everyone else. It was natural, even an honor to see your oldest brother be dedicated to the local temple. It was all normal. As far back as you and your parents and your grandparents can remember, your ancestors have done and believed the very same thing. So why would you ever bring shame to your community and to your family by even questioning that truth claim? Wouldn't doubt, though, be your friend in this situation if it was a false truth claim that led you, after death, to a place of eternal separation from God? See, what doubt often does is is it ensures that the object of our faith is trustworthy rather than an illusion or a lie. But even when our object of faith is secure, doubts may persist. And this is where I, I want us to hear Jude's exhortation, capturing the spirit of Jesus, where he exhorts God's people in Jude 22. He says this, have mercy on those who are doubting. Why could Jude say that? Well, there's illustrations in the scripture throughout God's word where we see God's mercy given to doubters. I want to look at four of these. Mercy and help for doubters. And for the first one, I again want to go back to Habakkuk. Turn with me to the minor prophet Habakkuk. For a book written 2,500 years ago, it sure deals with some surprisingly contemporary issues. And what the prophet is doing is he is exploring the the mysteries of God and his ways that seem contrary to his character. You have a mature, godly prophet, and yet he's questioning the character and the ways of God. Now, we've already read through some of the first chapter where he's crying out 
How can you do this? Why are you silent? But I want you to see Habakkuk's first response. After he questions, look at Habakkuk 2, verse 1. Because his response to confusing circumstances is exemplary. And, and maybe here's a good point to understand that doubt is not static. Doubt doesn't just sit still. Doubt moves. It can either move us towards God or it can move us away from God. Doubt, in this case, is directional. So I want you to see where Habakkuk's doubt moves him. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk realizes his prayer has been a complaint. It's been an accusation. Perplexing experiences for Habakkuk, the Chaldeans cutting a war path down through Israel and being used as a tool of punishment upon that nation. Or maybe if that's not our experience, the death of a child or some twisted evil that affects our, our loved ones. None of these experiences should move us away from God. We should stand and wait on the Lord. Look at God's first answer. It's found in chapter 2, verse 4. God's first answer, he says this, and this will sound familiar because it's quoted three times in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by his, what? By his faith. God's people live, suffer, endure, doubt, and persevere by faith. Alan Cairns said this, Faith recognizes that we cannot start with the problem of evil and reason our way up to God, either to justify or to criticize Him. We must start with God as we know Him in Christ and deal with the perplexities of life in the light of that knowledge. That's God's first answer. The righteous shall live by his faith. Look at his second answer. And it's a long answer. And we're not going to look at the entire thing. But it begins in chapter 2, verse 2. The full answer doesn't come until after he says the righteous shall live by faith. But God is not letting evil go. So God is going to give Habakkuk a glimpse of, of an answer to his complaint. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me. And I, I want you to kind of imagine this picture. Write the vision, he's saying this to Habakkuk, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. So, so the vision is supposed to be in such big letters that a messenger who is running and reading these tablets can still read it even though he's running and moving up and down. God is saying it's going to be so clear, it's going to happen. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. God's time is not our time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie, meaning the vision will come to pass even though you, Habakkuk, think I'm indifferent and I could not care less. If it seems slow, and often God's timing does, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Here's what happens through these three chapters of Habakkuk. Habakkuk moves from confusion and frustration at God's ways to confidence in who God is. Habakkuk starts by, by accusing God for the way God is running his world. But by the end of the book, he expresses faith in God's character and submission to his ways. It's a great reminder, Romans 11.34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So if you doubt like Habakkuk does, 
If you ever wonder what God the Father looks like, study the four Gospels and observe Jesus, who, who John says is full of grace and truth. If you ever wonder if the Father is different than the Son, there is a difference, but not in character and not in goodness and not in grace. Listen to what Jesus says to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Our second doubter is in the New Testament. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll call him the desperate father. And he's desperate because a demon has taken control of his child and it's been going on for quite some time. Jesus asks the father about the particular spirit. And the father says in Mark chapter 9, verse 18, it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Later on, the father says it tries to throw him into the water or tries to throw him into the fire to harm him. Look at verse 22, Mark chapter 9. The father says to Jesus, I want you to hear the father's, so the father's response. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, I love Jesus' response, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. A simple, heartfelt prayer that Jesus answers by healing this man's son. You know, the disciples also learned through this. They went back, look at verse 28, Mark chapter 9. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The man asked for help with his doubt, and Jesus came to his aid. Habakkuk asks for an answer to his frustration, and God responds. Look at our third doubter. He's someone we don't really expect to struggle with doubt. And his name is John, and he's been given this title, John the Baptist. This is the man who comes out of the wilderness, purposely looking like the last of the Old Testament prophets, He's proclaiming the coming Messiah. He's wearing camel fuzz and eating locusts with wild honey. I mean, he's like a real man's man. This is the man who baptized the Son of God. This is the man who witnessed the Holy Spirit coming down that looked like a dove. This is the man who heard the audible voice of God saying, This is my Son, John the Baptist. Yet at the end of his life, he's imprisoned. And while he's isolated in Herod's prison, he doubted. In Matthew 11, verse 2, it says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, of the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples. So John had his own followers and he sends word to Jesus through these men. And he said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Like John already said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John already baptized him. Now he's isolated in prison He's older, and he says, are you even the one who is to come? It was John who said in John chapter 3, verse 27, earlier, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, 
But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, listen to what he says. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Complete joy. What happened, John? Isolated in prison and you're, you're even wondering who this is. But look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now that John is being decreased, He's doubting. And you know that Jesus does not scold him? Jesus does not rebuke him? Jesus doesn't tell John simply to stop doubting? He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke John? What, but he doesn't visit John in prison either and show himself in person. What Jesus does is he performs miracles and sends his disciples back to John with basically the fulfillment of a prophecy out of Isaiah, a prophecy that John would have understood. And the disciples go back and they say the lame are healed and the blind see and the good news is preached. That's all John gets. But I want to give you a glimpse of what happened after John's disciples leave. I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Because this is what John the Baptist and his disciples did not hear. Jesus said this, as they went away, he's speaking to the multitudes. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, right? Something, something weak. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? He's talking about John the Baptist. A prophet. Yes, and Jesus says, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. John was the fulfillment of his own prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The very same man in a cell doubting whether this is the Christ or not. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, listen to what he says about John the Baptist. He is Elijah who is to come. The second Elijah is in prison and doubting. And John had no idea that Jesus spoke those things of him. God is always doing more than we understand. There's always so much more going on in the plan and the timing of God. But John asked for reassurance and Jesus provided it partly. Our fourth and final doubter this morning, we can't overlook him, is Thomas. He, he earned the nickname Doubting Thomas that it's difficult to call out his name and not refer to him by that. The resurrected Jesus has, had appeared to the other disciples. Thomas may have felt left out. He, he wasn't provided with the evidence that the others were given. And they told Thomas about it. And this is what Thomas replies when the other disciples tell him, men whom he would have trusted otherwise. Thomas replies to them in John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side where that spear opened him up. I want you to notice this, the force of this. I will never believe when Jesus finally appears to Thomas, and I think that would have been a long eight days, while the other disciples had eyewitness proof and Thomas sort of felt sidelined and neglected, 
And now he's doubting. And he's saying, I will never believe. Finally, when, when Jesus does appear to Thomas, instead of rebuking him for his doubt or his skepticism or rebuking Thomas for his insistence on proof, listen to what Jesus does in John twenty twenty seven. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And it was only after offering that evidence in tenderness and grace that Jesus invited Thomas to believe. And Thomas's response is beautiful. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered him. He doesn't just say, my Lord, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, and I don't think he's rebuking him. I think there's a tenderness in Jesus' voice here. Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas asked for evidence and Jesus gave it. So doubt is not static. It's directional. And here's how we doubt towards Jesus. As the desperate father did, ask Jesus for help even with your unbelief, even with your doubting. As John the Baptist did, ask Jesus for clarification and reassurance. As Thomas did, ask for supporting experiential evidence. It's what the Apostle Paul prays, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection. That knowledge there is experiential knowledge. So how do we resolve doubt in conclusion? How should we respond to these passages and these Old Testament and New Testament personalities and these truths? And this is going to sound simple, so I want to develop it. There's so many directions we can go, but here's one one huge application. Believe. Since doubt is a matter of trust, much of our answer rests in faith. But faith always has an object and faith should never be our emotions. So believe what specifically? Believe the beauty of the gospel is not an illusion. It's not a lie. It's an incredible truth. Believe that God loved the world so much that He sent His Son, believed that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh to deliver you from the curse that was over you because of your sin. Believe in the fact of and the supporting proofs of Jesus' bodily resurrection that validate His claims. Claims that He's the Son of God. Claims that He can forgive sin. That He can reconcile humanity with the Father. That He's the way to the Father, the giver of life. At some point, you need to see the Gospel story of Jesus in a, in a way that addresses your doubts, your doubts about God's judgment or your doubts about not finding satisfaction or joy or contentment or relationship. Everything people are seeking, everything you are seeking, maybe even as a believer outside of Jesus can only be found ultimately in him. So, yes, believe in him as the object, not only of saving faith, but the object of ultimate joy. Because Jesus was forsaken by his father we never have to be forsaken. Three New Testament books, Romans, Galatians, and James, each say this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The same man who doubted God, who questioned God, believed God. And I love what James adds to his description. And Abraham was called a friend of God. Recall what God answered Habakkuk with, the righteous shall live by his faith. That quote is also used three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. What did the righteous living by faith look like 
for Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.20. This is what he says. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. For you, right, the righteous living by faith is finding a place of being silent and still before God. In Habakkuk 3.16, Habakkuk says, I will quietly wait for Him. In Habakkuk 3.18-19, he moves from silence and quietness and then he says this, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. Jesus would often say to those who were following Him, He would often say with great tenderness to His own disciples, O oh, you of little faith, Oswald Chambers said this, Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. So how do you know? How do you learn the character of God? Faith is so closely connected to God's Word. Yes, that's that's the final application. Are you earnestly looking for where God said He would be found? God did not promise to be found at a concert or at a party or alone on a hike, he may appear a thousand different places, but he has promised to reveal himself through his Son and through his Word. That is why Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. That is why Jesus prayed in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them through your truth, your Word is truth. And why Paul says in Colossians three sixteen, Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Then we can be as the faith people of Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance. It is a confidence. It's not, hope is not, oh, I really hope it happens. Hope is confident expectation in the character and promises of God. Now, faith is the assurance, the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so God regularly commands his people to trust him, to have faith in him. To believe His promises because they are, 2 Corinthians 1.20, yes and amen, meaning truly, in the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning Messiah. God has mercy on doubters. Christians need permission to doubt, but you need to understand what that doubt is doing and allow it to direct you to God. And as others doubt... And as we walk with God through doubt, we need to be careful to obey Jude's exhortation, have mercy on those who are doubting. Let's pray.